0: Happy Halloween. I'm Cassie. Welcome to a very special Halloween episode of Crime and Cassie and All Things Creepy. Ah! Sorry about my voice if it sounds weird. I had a cold like two weeks ago and my voice still wasn't cooperating. I took two weeks off of recording to let it get better and it still sounds like this so sorry guys are you guys dressing up this year or no if so i want to hear what everybody's going as and what are your plans and can i come cool see you there i am a camp crystal lake counselor and a final girl obviously i'm still here this is my buddy jason had to put him in his place because as i said final girl For those of you listening on the podcast version, I have a life-size Jason Voorhees behind me. I've had him on my porch for a while and I cannot get used to him. So every time I let my two dogs out, uh, he scares the bejesus out of me. I took a video trying to scare them with it and I ended up scaring myself. I can't wait to take it down. Today, we're talking about a case that takes place on Halloween because your girl loves a theme. Actually, it takes place the night before Halloween or if you lived in Greenwich, Connecticut in the 1970s, mischief night. There was a Lifetime movie about this, or at least I saw it on Lifetime when I was a teenager and it blew my mind. It's still one of my favorites. It actually had Chris Maloney as the lead, aka Daddy Stabler. Do you want to know why I'm a weirdo? I saw this movie again as a teenager and I was like, oh my God, I want to live there someday. Other people dream of going somewhere warmer and I'm like, no, let me go further north. And it's a movie about a murder, but yeah, I wanted to live there. I was also certain I'd be a billionaire by now, so let's all laugh together on that one. To be honest, I still kinda do wanna live there. It's the perfect blend of everything. It's close to NYC if you wanna do anything fun. It has a nice blend of trees, a body of water, all while being very suburban at the same time. My number one favorite Lifetime movie is also based on a true story. And I plan on doing an episode on that in the future. Anyone who can guess what that is, I'll give a shout out during that episode. But back to this story, and it's a crazy one, and it's really heartbreaking because it's a teenage girl with everything ahead of her, all the potential in the world, all the advantages at her fingertips. This is one of my favorite cases ever. It's intrigued me for so long. I am gonna take you down rabbit hole after rabbit hole, but stick with me, it will be worth it. Well, will it? you'll have to see. Today we're talking about the unsolved murder of Martha Moxley. So it's the summer of 1974 and we're talking dead in the middle of the 70s. I want to be there. I mean maybe not after hearing this but my god what a vibe. The Moxleys moved from Piedmont, California to the upper class neighborhood of Bellhaven in Greenwich, Connecticut. The Moxleys consist of mom, Dorothy, dad, John David, and their two teenagers, John and Martha. John David had gotten a job as a partner at an accounting firm, so this was a huge step up for them and a huge opportunity. Now, when I say upper class, I mean upper class. I mean, this was a gated community. People commuted to the Big Apple. We're talking multi-millionaires and beyond. There were Wall Street guys, Doctors to the Stars accountants to the stars, lawyers to the stars, stars themselves, political dynasties. Fast forward to the fall of 1975, the Moxleys have settled into Bellhaven nicely. Again, Bellhaven is the gated community in Greenwich, Connecticut. They've become members of the exclusive Bellhaven club where they would swim, play tennis, and hang out with the ritziest of the Ritzies. Especially 15-year-old Martha, who is now a sophomore And within her first year of living in Greenwich, Martha was voted most popular. Martha Elizabeth Moxley was born August 16th, 1960. She's described as friendly, upbeat, bubbly. Her friends and family also say she was good at everything. She was athletic. She was talented in the arts. All the boys had a crush on her. She was the ultimate California girl. Look at her. Of course they did. And although she was popular and loved hanging out with her friends, she also loved just as much being at home, spending time with her family and her little kitty cat tiger. She was a good student and an overall good kid, but she was a teenager. And sometimes teenagers are gonna teenager. She'd have the occasional beer, the occasional smoke, because 1970s, and would even stay out past her curfew from time to time. On the night of October 30th, 1975, or as they called it, mischief night, Martha wanted to go out with her friends, Uh, She had actually been grounded because she had stayed out too late the weekend prior, but her mom decided to cut her some slack and let her go out with her friends. Let's talk about mischief night. Mischief night, depending on where you live, is either the night before or around Halloween where basically teenagers go out and they prank people and vandalize in the name of ceremony. It's usually pretty harmless stuff, ding dong ditch, TP your house, It seems to be an East Coast thing more than anything, but I'm on the East Coast and I had never heard of it until this case. Parts of New England call it Cabbage Night, elsewhere it's Devil's Eve or Gate Night or Goosey Night. The oldest uses of the term Mischief Night actually go back to the UK in 1790 at Oxford, which is crazy. What did that even look like? I'm picturing like revolutionary soldiers from the British, their little red coats and their wigs on running around wreaking havoc. Like, what did that look like? It didn't start out as the night before Halloween. It originally started as the day before May Day. When quote, young people played practical jokes such as switching shop signs, overturning water tubs, and trapping people inside their houses. Sounds super wholesome. So Dorothy is expecting Martha home and she's waiting up for her and ends up falling asleep in her window seat in their home library. At one point, she hears some noise coming from outside. To her, it kind of sounded like a group. She ends up falling back asleep and wakes up around 4 a.m. to discover that Martha still isn't home. And she panics and calls Martha's friends. So Dorothy first calls her friend that she knew that Martha was with that night, Helen. And Helen tells her that she had not seen her since last night. She last saw her with Tommy Skakel at the Skakel residence. So the Skakel household consists of father Rushton Skakel and his children, two of them being 17-year-old Tommy and 15-year-old Michael. They're connected to a political family, but you've probably never heard of them. It's just the Kennedys. Rushton's sister Ethel was the widow of none other than Robert F. Kennedy, who had been assassinated in 1968. Rushton and Ethel's father, George Sr., started out as a railroad clerk, And he eventually started his own business called the Great Lakes Carbon Corporation and became a multimillionaire. George Sr. and his wife, Anne, settled into Greenwich, Connecticut with their seven children. But tragically, George Sr. and his wife died in a plane crash in 1955. And even more tragically, their son, George Jr., also died in a plane crash in 1966. Imagine being poor Ethel and having your parents die horribly and then a decade later, your brother dies the same way horribly. And then two years later, your husband gets murdered. Rushton ends up taking over the family business. And coincidentally, he also marries a woman named Anne and has seven children of his own. So exactly what his dad did. But again, tragedy. Anne dies of melanoma that ends up spreading to her brain in 1973 at just 42 years old. This is why I tell you guys to wear your SPF at the end of every episode. And also, I mean, get your moles checked. Rushton doesn't cope very well with all of this. He's an alcoholic and allegedly abusive to his children. On the flip side, he gave them everything they wanted. They didn't really have any rules or structure. It wasn't uncommon for him to be gone for long periods of time and the siblings would fight with each other constantly It was just a chaotic, toxic environment. At just 15 and 17 years old, Michael and Tommy already have issues with substance abuse. Their house is pretty much party central for teenagers. It's not always completely unsupervised though. On October 30th, 1975, Rushton is out of town, as per usual, on a hunting trip in upstate New York. He had recently hired a family tutor slash babysitter named Ken Littleton. Ken is not exactly Mr. Responsible himself that night when Michael tries to order an alcoholic beverage, he's fully expecting Ken to shut it down and Ken says nothing and just lets him order it. On October 31st, Dorothy is frantically looking for Martha and remember she had just talked to her friend Helen who said, I lost her at the Skakels. So she goes over to the Skakels and Michael answers the door and she can tell he's hungover. And she asks him, you know, have you seen Martha? I can't find her. And he says, I haven't seen her here since last night. At this point, she's called all of Martha's friends. They're pretty much all there helping her look for Martha. Not long after Martha's friend, Sheila, makes a gruesome discovery. She finds Martha's body lying face down under a large pine tree at the edge of her family's property. Her clothing was blood-stained, her pants and underwear were pulled down to her ankles, her hair, you couldn't even tell that it was blonde because it was so drenched in blood. Police start investigating immediately and they determine that Martha was killed between 9.30 and 10 p.m. the previous night. They say that she was first struck in the driveway but ends up under the tree, possibly even chased, but definitely dragged to like right underneath the tree. They think it was a frenzied killing. She was beaten horribly with a golf club, but that's not what killed her. When the golf club ended up shattering, her killer used the sharp end of the shaft to fatally stab her. They find pieces of the rod of the golf club, the head of the golf club. Um, I think it shatters into like four pieces and they find all but one piece and they're, Able to determine that it's a Tony Penna Lady Six iron, and it matches a set found in the Skakel's home. And even though her pants are pulled down to her ankles, they never find any evidence of sexual assault. They start questioning everyone, and they get a rough timeline of the night. Martha goes with friends Helenix and Jeffrey Burns to the Skakel house around 8:45, and they're greeted by Michael. They then go to the car at the Skakel's house, and they sit inside and they listen to music. Eventually, Tommy comes out and Tommy joins them. Martha sits between Michael and Tommy, and it was stated that Tommy put his hand on her knee twice and she kept rushing him away. Around 9.30, the Skakel's two older brothers, Rushton Jr. and John, decide to drive over to their cousins, the Tarians. Michael invites Martha, but she says no, and then she heads home. Tommy goes back into the house to do his homework and watch TV with Ken, the tutor babysitter. And Michael ends up getting home around 1130 and goes straight to bed. So all three, Michael, Tommy, and Ken are initially considered suspects, but police don't really have anything to go on. There were hairs found on... The police blanket used to wrap Martha's body, but depending on who you ask, you get different answers as to what kind of hair it was. Um, I think it's just unreliable evidence, personally. Now 23-year-old Ken had just moved in that day, so it's hard to believe that he would lie for Tommy, but Ken is, let's say, troubled. He ended up giving multiple stories about that night and failed a few polygraphs. He ends up getting banned from the Skagel House altogether in April of 1976. He ends up eventually getting arrested in Nantucket for burglary. And, you know, he had become an alcoholic and suffered from, quote, psychotic breaks. Leads end up drying up and eventually this becomes a cold case. So time's rolling on. Cue the 1990s. Sadly, Martha's father, John David, passed away in 1988 at the age of 57 due to a heart attack. So Martha's brother John and his mom Dorothy are the only two that are left really fighting for justice for Martha. At one point, John even goes to see Ken Littleton in Boston and apparently Ken breaks down crying a few times, but John left that meeting feeling like Ken didn't commit the murder and was just someone that was troubled and caught in the middle of all this and struggled with it after. The Skakel boys, in particular Tommy, always lived kind of under a dark cloud of suspicion. DNA is becoming a thing and Rushton has to protect the family name, of course. So he hires a detective agency called the Sutton Associates and pays them nearly one million dollars to examine the case basically because the Skagel boys were always suspected by the community in Greenwich and he wanted to see how exposed they were. Basically, he's like, okay, what does this do to our reputation? Someone get this man a number one dad coffee mug. A man from California is about to change this case forever. His name? Mark Furman. If that name sounds familiar to you, it's because it became infamous in the O.J. Simpson trial. Mark Furman was an LAPD detective, and when asked on the stand if he had ever used racial slurs in the 1980s, he says no. When the defense produced recordings of him using said racial slurs, they're like, that's perjury, baby. And now who knows if you're planting evidence? And many people still believe that he is a huge reason why OJ was acquitted. He ended up being charged with perjury but accepted a plea bargain and ended up being sentenced to three years of probation and had to pay a fine of $200. He ends up apologizing and swears he's not racist, and in fact, many of his co workers who were minorities end up vouching for him. But nonetheless, his reputation is ruined at that point and he retires from the LAPD in 1995. He gets a second wind as an author and in 1997, he publishes his first book titled Murder in Brentwood about the OJ Simpson case. Mark then talks to an old friend that he knew through the OJ Simpson case named Dominic Dunn. And Dominic convinces Mark to take a look at the Martha Moxley case. Get ready for one of those rabbit holes. If the name Dominic Dunn sounds familiar to you it's because he's a famous writer and investigative journalist for Vanity Fair and he's had several shows based on true crime in the court system. True crime becomes personal for Dominic when his own daughter Dominique is murdered in 1982. Dominique Dunn is a rising star and actress most known for her role as Dana Freeling in the movie Poltergeist. When I tell you I looked exactly like the little girl from Poltergeist, I am not exaggerating. I could have been her stunt double. They could have sucked me into the TV. She also died tragically at the age of 12. And people always talk about a Poltergeist curse. And honestly, I'll probably do an episode eventually. So I won't get too into that right now. Dominique is becoming this it girl in Hollywood. Her brother, by the way, is actor Griffin Dunn, AKA Uncle Nicky from This Is Us. What a family. Things were going great for Dominique career-wise, but her love life was another story. She had just gotten out of an on-again, off-again relationship with a man named John Thomas Sweeney. John was a chef at an upscale restaurant called Ma Mason in L.A. Ma Mason is best known for giving Wolfgang Puck his start in the culinary world. Not long into their relationship, John becomes jealous and possessive and eventually becomes physically abusive to Dominique. She finally gets the courage to leave him in September of 1982. Then, now this is wild, on October 30th, 1982, of all days, Mischief Night, Dominique was rehearsing at home for a TV series with her co-star David Packer when John shows up at her door. Apparently, John kept calling her that night and eventually just showed up on her doorstep. She goes outside and David hears a scream, a smack, and a thud. He tries to call the police, but they were like, no, that's out of our jurisdiction. I don't really understand what happened there. So then he pretty much calls a friend and says, hey, if I end up dead, this is the guy that did it. Finally, he goes outside and he sees John standing over Dominique's unconscious body. When police finally come, and how they came, I have no idea. John put his hands in the air and says, I tried to kill my girlfriend, and then I tried to kill myself. Well, then just kill yourself, you moron. Dominique ends up falling into a coma, but sadly dies on November 4th, 1982, at just 22 years old. The trial is a media circus, and what's crazy is Dominic, Dominique's dad, goes to the trial not just as a victim's family member, but to cover his daughter's story for an article for Vanity Fair. They ended up titling it Justice, A Father's Account of the Trial of His Daughter's Killer. That would take an unimaginable amount of strength. They couldn't charge John with first-degree murder because there wasn't any evidence to say that it was premeditated, I mean, it could have been premeditated. Maybe he was pissed because she wouldn't take him back. So he's like, okay, this time I'm going to go over there and I'm going to kill her. Either way, there was no way of knowing. So second degree it is. Shockingly, tragically, whichever way you want to describe it, he is acquitted of second degree murder and found guilty on the much lesser charge of manslaughter and sentenced to just six and a half years in prison. But he was released after just three. Dominique's brother Griffin, a.k.a. Uncle Nicky, later said, quote, if she had lived, she'd be an actress everyone in the world would know. He, meaning John, is a murderer. He's murdered, and I think he will do it again. He had allegedly abused other women before Dominique, but the judge ruled that that testimony would be prejudicial, which is so sad because I think if the jury had heard that, he would have been convicted on that second-degree murder charge. Luckily, there's been no mention of him hurting anyone else since his release, so let's just hope it stays that way. So now we're in the 90s, and Dominic is working for Vanity Fair, and he's covering another high-profile case. In 1991, Dominic attends the trial of William Kennedy Smith, cousin to the Skakels. William is a doctor and the founder of Physicians Against Landmines, a Chicago-based organization that advocates for an end to the use of landmines and assists persons injured by landmines. He also founded the Center for International Rehabilitation, or as they call it, the CIR. On March 29, 1991, also happened to be Good Friday, William is out with his uncle, Ted Kennedy, and his cousin, Patrick J. Kennedy. Uh, They were at a bar, and while they were there, William strikes up a conversation with a woman named Patricia Bowman and her friend. For whatever reason, William asks 29-year-old Patricia for a ride home to the house that he was staying at which was owned by the Kennedys. According to Patricia, the two of them walked along the beach for a while and eventually William violently sexually assaults her. Around 4 a.m., Patricia calls her friends to come pick her up from the Kennedy compound and they take her home and there she calls a rape crisis center. She then reports the incident to police and they end up having her taken to the hospital to have a rape kit done and In that rape kit, they documented sperm in her vagina, complaints of severe pain and bruising. At trial, William said everything was completely consensual, but she literally had bruising. Also, three women, including a medical student and a law student, were willing to testify that William had sexually assaulted them in the 1980s, but they, I guess, had never reported it to police. And then their testimony was excluded on grounds that the pattern of behavior reported was not similar enough in its details to Patricia's case. Ridiculous in my opinion. In just over an hour, the jury comes back with a verdict of not guilty. However, in 2004, William is hit with a civil lawsuit by an employee from the CIR. She claimed that he had sexually assaulted her in 1999 Now, he adamantly denies this, but he ends up resigning from the CIR and later the organization says that it was settled amicably and in January 2005, the case is dismissed altogether. During the trial for the sexual assault of Patricia, a rumor started to circulate that William was present at the Skakel's house on the night of Martha's murder. It ended up being proven totally untrue. but. Dominic became more and more enthralled by the Moxley case, and he even wrote a fictional novel based on the case titled Season in Purgatory. So now Dominic goes to Mark Furman, and he says, you got to look at the Martha Moxley case because Dominic has some information that's going to flip this case upside down. So if you remember, Rushton had hired the Sutton Associates to kind of look into the case to see how exposed his boys were. So an employee from the Sutton Associates ends up leaking a highly confidential report to none other than Dominic Dunn. The report states that not only did Tommy lie to police, but Michael did too. It also states that Ken Littleton lied to police, but that's mostly based on his failed polygraphs. And if you know anything about true crime, you know that they are always the most reliable. The report states that Tommy didn't go back into the house right away. It states that Tommy said that he was engaging in a quote, sexual encounter with Martha for approximately 30 minutes. Other sources have said that this sexual encounter was just a makeout sesh, but I don't know. I find that all suspicious because in Martha's diary, she states this, I went to a party. Tom S. was being an ass. At the dance, he kept putting his arms around me, dot, 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 making moves. Michael was so totally out of it that he was being a real ass. He kept telling me that I was leading Tom on. Michael jumps to conclusions. I really have to stop going over there. In another entry, she references another thing. She puts, went driving in Tom's car, dot, 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 and I was practically sitting on Tom's lap. He kept putting his hand on my knee. Also that night in the car, people kept saying that she was pushing his hand away from her knee then. But if you thought that was gonna be the biggest bombshell in the Sutton report, then buckle yourselves in. Now, Michael says that he got back to the house much earlier than he had told everybody, and he did one of the most normal things ever. He went to the Moxley's house, he climbed a tree outside of what he thought was Martha's window, he throws a couple pebbles, and then, uh, oh, he masturbates in the tree. Now, remember, this report was taken in the early 90s, Michael is an adult now, and I'm sure he's aware of this up-and-coming thing called DNA. Mark Furman says, whoever did this, it was a crime of passion. He says that the first blow was probably just out of anger, and then after that, the person thinks to themselves, okay, I have a decision to make. Do I go get her help, or do I finish her off? he chooses to finish her off. Mark releases his best-selling book in 1998 titled Murder in Greenwich, which eventually becomes that life-type movie I told you guys about. And he names exactly who he thinks murdered Martha Moxley, Michael Skakel. He says that Michael and Tommy were always at odds. They were always in competition with each other. And there was a saying in the Skakel family Tommy knew he was loved, Michael knew that he wasn't. Michael admittedly had a crush on Martha and he admittedly had been drinking all day. Mark thinks that Michael saw Tommy and Martha kissing or at least flirting or whatever was happening and he just becomes enraged and he goes and he grabs one of those golf clubs lying around and attacked Martha. The book sets this case ablaze and investigators are forced to look into everything. And finally, in 1998, a one-person grand jury hearing, which is very rare, is convened to hear evidence against Michael. Prosecution has no physical evidence linking him to the case, but they do have, of course, the Sutton report. And they also have multiple witnesses from a reform school that Michael was sent to as a teen, the infamous Elon School. After a drunk driving incident, Rushton sends Michael to the Elon School in Poland Spring, Maine. The Elan School opened in 1970, and it was known for its intense behavioral modification techniques. There's actually a documentary about it called Children of Darkness. They allegedly would mentally and physically abuse the students there, they would berate them in group therapy. They, again, allegedly would make them clean urinals with their own toothbrushes, and they would make them participate in something called Elan's ring, which is basically a boxing ring to make students fight each other. There ended up being an investigation into the death of Phil Williams. He was a student who died there on December 27, 1982, after allegedly being forced to participate in Elan's ring. They never ended up filing charges though, citing insufficient evidence. During Michael's roughly two year stay, witnesses say that he just blurted out during one of the group therapy sessions that he had killed Martha. But Joe Ritchie, the school's owner, completely denies this. One of those witnesses was Gregory Coleman, He told a local news reporter, the first words Michael ever said to me was, I'm going to get away with murder. I'm a Kennedy. He said that he made several advances toward Martha. She rejected him. And then he quote, drove her skull in with a golf club. Another student, John Higgins, said that he had a conversation with Michael on a porch at the Elon school. He said that Michael told him about this party at his house and how he had remembered going through some golf clubs in his garage and said that he was running through the woods, he had a golf club in his hand, he looked up, he saw pine trees, the next thing he remembers is he wakes up in his house. He then said that Michael made a progression of statements, first saying he didn't know whether or not he killed Martha, but eventually saying, I didn't. Another classmate, Chuck Segan, said that John always tried to get people in trouble and he didn't think he was being truthful about what Michael allegedly said to him. He also said that Michael seemed kind of embarrassed by the Kennedy connection. So Greg's statement about him saying, I can get away with murder, I'm a Kennedy. He thinks that was BS. And that was my first thought too, honestly. Like who's gonna say that I'm a Kennedy? That's beyond desperate. Regardless, the grand jury moves forward, and in January 2000, police arrest 39-year-old Michael Skakel for the murder of Martha Moxley. In 2002, Michael's trial begins. His family hires renowned attorney, Mickey Sherman. Before trial begins, the prosecution is seemingly dealt a blow when Greg Coleman dies of a drug overdose. He was apparently high at one of the hearings, but was not high at the probable cause hearing. So the prosecutor said, quote, In Connecticut, if there's a sworn record of testimony and your counsel has had the chance to adequately investigate and cross-examine that witness, then that testimony is admissible. And the judge agrees. They also have a witness in the form of Skakel family friend, Andrea Shakespeare, who says that she never saw Michael get in the car to go with his brothers to their cousins. But the most damning information comes from Michael himself. Around the time that police first started investigating this case again in 1998, Michael was writing a memoir about his life and the Kennedy family, which for me kind of gives credence to Greg Coleman's I'm a Kennedy quote, but I'm still skeptical about that. Michael was putting his own thoughts on tape and he was working with a ghostwriter and he starts to talk about the night of the murder. He says that he was in the car with Martha and everybody else and he was telling her, oh, you should come to the Terrians with us. It'll be so much fun. And Martha was like, no, I can't. My mom said I have to be home by nine. After he got home, he said that he couldn't sleep and he couldn't stop thinking about this lady up at Walsh Lane. He says that he goes to this woman's house and he starts spying in her window, hoping to see her naked. He said he was kind of high, kind of drunk and couldn't get it up. Sir, even if this is true, you are a peeping Tom. Then he says to himself, well, Martha likes me. I'll go get a kiss from Martha. And remember, he has a crush on Martha. He admits that. He says that he climbs a tree outside of Martha's window, which ended up being her brother John's window and was yelling her name, throwing pebbles. And I already told you what he does next, but he gives graphic detail. So brace yourselves because it's gross have any children around or anyone with sensitive ears maybe ear muff them he said quote i pulled my pants down i masturbated for 30 seconds in the tree and i remember thinking oh my god i hope to god nobody saw me jerking off then i woke up to mrs moxley saying michael have you seen martha and i was like oh my god did they see me last night (laughs) This tree that he says he was in wasn't the tree that Martha was found under. And I've read in certain sources that there wasn't even a tree outside of that particular window, but I don't know. Michael claims as he was walking back to his house that something in him told him not to go over to that dark area. And that dark area was where Martha's body was later found. And in his own words, he said, if anybody finds out that I was there, they'll think that I did it. That is enough for the jury to hear. And in 2002, Michael is found guilty and sentenced to 20 years to life in prison. He later pleads his innocence and says the Moxley's deserve their pound of flesh. It just isn't me. So after Michael was put in jail, a new legal team forms and they try to get him an appeal on the grounds that he was deprived of a constitutional right to counsel. They say that Mickey failed to present Tommy as a suspect, that he failed to properly challenge the witness statements from the students from Milan School. A Superior Court judge agrees. He overturns the conviction and orders a new trial. On November 11th, 2013, Michael is released on a $1 million bail. In 2016, prosecutors convince the Supreme Court to reinstate Michael's conviction. But Michael has someone else on his side none other than his first cousin, Robert F. Kennedy Jr. R.D.K. Jr. is a law professor and he says that he barely knew Michael growing up because the Skakels tended to be more Republican and obviously the Kennedys are more Democratic. He says that he got to know him in the 1980s and in 2016 he releases a book titled Framed. As you can gather from the title, it basically references his belief that Michael was framed and he even lays out other suspects. A man named Tony Bryant, who happens to be the cousin of um, Kobe Bryant, no big deal. Tony was a former classmate of Michael's and Martha's and he grew up in Greenwich. Tony has kind of a sketchy past. He was convicted of tax fraud and armed robbery. Tony says that he had two friends from the Bronx, Burton Tinsley and Adolph Hasbrock. Michael's bodyguard Chris is able to secure an on-camera interview with Tony about what he may or may not know about the night of Martha's murder. The interviewer is Vito Colucci who is a private investigator and Tony gets on camera and he starts to tell a story. He says that he introduces Burton and Adolph who by the way goes by Al, so from here on out we will call him Al because I cannot, to Martha. According to Tony, Al had an infatuation with Martha But Martha was polite to him and nice to him, but kind of just brushed him off. Tony said that he told him he wanted to have sex with her and wanted to go caveman on her. I'm watching this interview. As soon as somebody suggests something, Tony immediately agrees. For example, he's saying that Al was intrigued and the interviewer says, intrigued or obsessed? And Tony goes, obsessed. Then with the caveman comment, they ask him to clarify, like, what does it mean going caveman, like grabbing her hair? And Tony's like, yes, grabbing her hair. I feel like it's like listening to a child try to tell you a story. Like if I'm talking to my niece and I make up something like, oh, I love apples on my pizza, she'll be like, oh, I love apples on my pizza. This is Tony the whole interview. People love to insert themselves into investigations and people do lie, it does happen. Anyway, so Tony said that Al had a golf club in his hand and he said, I have my caveman club and I'm going to go grab somebody by the hair and I'm going to do what cavemen do. He says that he then sees Alan Burton that following Monday and they basically say, well, I got mine, insinuating that they were the ones that murdered Martha. Tony says that he didn't come forward initially because he didn't want to be labeled a suspect himself. He says, I'm not a big fan of Michael's. We were always adversaries, but I have to do the right thing. He says that it wasn't uncommon for people to grab the Skakel's golf clubs because they left them lying all around the house and people would just kind of grab them off of the porch and go hit golf balls behind their house. The interviewer Vito Colucci says that he interviewed Al and Al was very nervous and that he couldn't keep his story straight. Al eventually says that he didn't even go to Greenwich that night. Vito also says that Tony's story can be corroborated because there were two hairs found on that police blanket from Martha's body, and one was African-American that would have been from Adolf Hasbrook, and the other was Asian appearing, and Bert was part Asian. But then on the flip side, world-renowned scientist Dr. Lee had said that the hairs were both Caucasian, or a Caucasian appearing. It's kind of hard for me to pinpoint the truth on this one for me, so I'll let you guys do with that what you will. Vito also says that Al and Burton were both subpoenaed, but that they both pled the fifth, and then after that, police just dropped it and stopped looking into them as suspects. The Fifth Amendment, by the way, protects you from self-incrimination. Al's lawyer says that he's innocent, And he says that Tony refused to tell the same story that he told to the private investigator Vito under oath. He also says that police were out more than usual that night for obvious reasons, it was mischief night. So of course the police are going to be out there. There's going to be more of a police presence. And this is Greenwich and it is the 1970s. We're talking whitest of the whites out here. If there had been a large African-American kid walking around he would have been noticed, and honestly, he probably would have been a suspect from the jump. Plus, it's a gated community, and they have a guard shack. Al's lawyer claims that he told him to plead the fifth because it does exactly what it did, stops it in its tracks. So remember, his conviction had been reinstated. So two years later, the Supreme Court reverses that decision to reinstate his conviction. Prosecutors appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court, but in January of 2019, they refused to review the case. Finally, on October 30th, 2020, mischief night of all days, 45 years to the day that Martha Moxley was murdered, the state of Connecticut announced that it would not retry Michael Skakel for Martha Moxley's murder. Michael's lawyer, Stephen Seeger, calls the decision, quote, the right result. He says, Michael Skakel was innocent then, he's innocent now. It's no stretch of the imagination that they can't prove the case within a reasonable doubt. It's not simply a technicality that ends this case. Martha's mom says that she still believes that Michael killed her daughter and that she doesn't need for him to spend any more time in prison. She says, quote, I'll never forget the day that they found him guilty. It gave me all the sense of justice I needed. I'll give you my opinions and what they are but that's just what they are, just my opinions and I want to hear all of your thoughts. So I think 100% Tommy or Michael committed the murder. I'm so back and forth on who. They both changed their stories so much. I find so much about their stories so suspicious. Tommy was last with her and he claims they were making out or they were doing whatever they were doing but it seems like Martha wasn't really that interested in Tommy. So maybe he makes a pass at her, she rejects him. Her pants were down, so maybe he planned on sexually assaulting her, but lost his nerve, if you know what I mean. And then of course, after that, he had attacked her basically, so, oh, okay, I have to kill her. And I think the same exact thing could have happened with Michael. He admittedly had a crush on her, Maybe he makes a move once he sees that Tommy goes inside of the house. He was already high and drunk and claims that he lost his nerve peeping in that lady's window. Maybe the same thing happens with Martha and then he has to kill her. Or like the prosecution thinks, maybe he saw her with Tommy and he flew into a jealous rage. This is the girl I like with the brother that I'm jealous of who's always gotten more attention than me and someone's gonna pay. I don't think that Ken did it because it absolutely looks like a heat of passion killing to me. But what are the chances that this guy moves in that day and a girl ends up dead that night? That is very suspicious. That would also be so ballsy and obvious. So I just, I don't think Ken's our guy. And then Bert and Al. I think that they would have stuck out like sore thumbs and they would have been obvious scapegoats. I think that Tony wanted the attention or whatever and like they said he wouldn't make those accusations under oath. I don't know if Martha's family will ever really get justice at this point because the case is just too messy. As Michael's lawyer said it's no stretch of the imagination that they can't prove this case within a reasonable doubt and I agree I wouldn't want to be a juror in this case. It's too 50-50 for me. I would have too many doubts about anybody in this case. This was the very first Halloween episode of Crime and Cassie. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and going down all these rabbit holes with me. I hope you guys have the best Halloween out there and that you're safe and that you eat all the candy. You deserve it. Pick out the good stuff before you give it away to the trick-or-treaters or take what you want out of your kid's candy when they're not looking. I won't judge. As always, you can find me on Instagram, TikTok, and now Facebook at CrimexCassie. Don't forget to hit that like and subscribe button, and don't be afraid to share this bad boy. Stay safe, lock your doors, wear your SPF, and just don't talk to your neighbors. Give them a wave and run inside like I do. Oh, and thank you guys for dealing with my voice. Hopefully it's better next week. Have a happy Halloween.